Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Paddy. I'm one of the staff workers, um, and um, I want to just thank you for the invitation to be able to come and speak on this particular topic. Uh, for those of you who have been here for the last couple of weeks, we're working through this particular topic of what are you longing for? And so today, I want to spend some time um, thinking about this question, are you longing for an end to pain and suffering? So while we jump in, I thought we'd uh, sort of start with uh, the longing that we all have. So my question to you is, can you actually imagine a perfect world? Just think for a minute, think about maybe what your morning's been like, or the week so far, or the last month, or can you imagine what that experience would have been like if it had have been perfect? Can you imagine the human condition with no experience of suffering? None at all. Can you imagine the human condition such that there is no pain? Not just physical pain, but no emotional pain. Can we actually comprehend the possibility of our human bodies being no longer frail and weak? Which for many of you, you can't comprehend that yet because you're in the prime of your youth. When you get to about my age, you'll start to comprehend your body becoming a bit weaker and a bit frailer. And So maybe you can't quite comprehend that yet, but maybe in your extended family experience, you're starting to experience that because maybe your parents have been diagnosed with certain illnesses or diseases and you, you see how that ravages their body. Maybe it's happened to your grandparents. Some of you may have even lost grandparents. Is it possible for there to be a world in which we could exist without suffering, without pain? without the pain of emotional rejection, without the pain of broken relationships, knowing that when we wake up this morning or the next morning, that we will not have to experience any of that. Well, I think sometimes when we sort of look out on the world, uh, we wonder whether or not that's actually possible. We look out on the world and we see suffering, We see famine, we see war, we see disease, we see... And we think, surely what I'm advocating for, a world without suffering, a world without pain, is just not possible. Um, What about this? This is the image of a child, a child I knew some many years ago, who was really quite unwell. The child was diagnosed with a disease which has a mortality rate of more than 50%. So what advice should I give the parents when I go and comfort them? What what message of hope should I give them, knowing that the child is but a few weeks old? See, sometimes we think the question is really out there, but when we stop and think about it and realise it in our own experience, actually it's often a lot closer to home. It sort of seems too good to be true, doesn't it? The possibility that there will be a world without suffering or pain, I think, seems too far from our experiences. Not only our own experiences, but the experiences of others in the world. So surely then, a claim for an end to suffering must be, therefore, in our own experience, considered to be ill-advised, deceptive, or perhaps even immoral. How dare I try and make this claim for an end to suffering and pain. So before I address as to why, before I address this possibility of an end, I want to ask why it is that we long for an end to suffering. I think in our own experience, when we look at the world, we realise that it just isn't right. It shouldn't be like that. 
Um, As a pastor, I shouldn't have to go and have the conversation with the parents of that child, let alone if I was a medical professional, I had to do it even more regularly. And yet we long for an end to pain and suffering. Why is it that we have that longing? Now, when I spoke last week, (laughs) I thought that might happen. Um, I'm going to get, who knows PowerPoint reasonably well? Anyone want to come and fix something for me? Beautiful, thanks. See, when you put white text on a white background, you can't actually read it. <laughs> so do you want to take it offline because the background should be the colour of the... And you might need to do it on all the slides. Is that right? <laughs> that was a little bit of brevity in such a serious topic. I don't have many jokes on the way through, so... Um, I spoke last week on Wednesday and I suggested the reason why we long for, um, uh, why why we have longings is actually been articulated by the Christian um, sort of writer, author and theologian C.S. Lewis. And um, I'll give you this quote and then in a minute we'll have a look at it on the screen. C.S. Lewis Lewis says, he says this, he says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. Thank you, Brian. Uh, A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find myself in a desire with no experience in this world to satisfy, in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Notice what C.S. Lewis is saying here. He's articulating that we have desires, all sorts of different desires. He's not saying that we will all have the same desire that cannot be fulfilled, but at some point we will all have a desire that he thinks cannot be fulfilled from this world. So he suggests that therefore the most probable explanation is that desire can only be fulfilled outside of this world, outside of this current experience. And Lewis then proposes, therefore, humanity is made for another world. Uh, Peter Crafter, a philosopher, philosopher, develops this idea a little bit more and he, uh, that Lewis had used to demonstrate and he puts it in these forms of two premises and a conclusion. Every natural innate desire in us corresponds to some real object that can satisfy that desire. But there exists in us a desire which nothing in time, nothing on earth, no creature can satisfy. Therefore, there must exist something more than time, earth and creatures which can satisfy this desire. You understand the argument that's going on here? Uh, Joe Puckett, who then speaks about this, says two things. There are infinite ways to fulfill the desires we have. Some are healthy for us. Others are addictive or unhealthy. Some are natural, others are developed only by habits. Some have real objects that correspond to them. And then again, he says, thus the argument set forth concerns whether or not mankind has a desire for a real object that corresponds to it, but yet does not exist anywhere in this world. And he then proposes, let's call that the desire for transcendence, something beyond us. I want to suggest to you and propose to you that even using this particular argument, The longing for the end to suffering is one such desire within us. We look at the claim that is made that the longing for suffering may be able to be achieved and yet in our experience we don't see that genuinely, deeply, eternally fulfilled. I want to suggest it's a valid longing that many, if not all of us, will feel and experience to varying degrees. And we all seek to satisfy this longing, the end to suffering, in various ways, some of which may be helpful for us, while others may be more destructive. So we can seek to fulfil our longing for an end to suffering in the things of the world. 
And often these things will actually temporarily satisfy those longings. I don't, I'm not disputing that. So there are those who turn, for example, to better education and the advances in medicine to relieve pain and suffering. These are actually really good, genuine things. May there be more of it. There are those who perhaps turn to substances to dull the pain and the ache. And I suspect we've all done that. I've taken Panadol. It's a substance that dulls the pain and the ache of either my sore knees or my bad back or whatever. Like... But then there are those who take stronger substances or perhaps get addicted to certain substances to continually dull the pain and the ache. Do you see how sometimes the good thing fulfills the desire and the longing for the end for suffering in the immediacy? But sometimes when taken too far or used unwisely, actually it does unhelpful things for us as we try and seek to fulfill that desire. And then there are some perhaps who seek other avenues to maybe remove themselves from pain and suffering. And we sort of do this all the time, actually. It's almost instinctive to us that we want to remove ourselves from pain and suffering. Why is that? I want to suggest to you it's because you're actually made for something beyond this world. You're made by a transcendent God. And what we actually long for to fulfil that desire for the longing of pain and suffering is something that's actually beyond us. The Christian expectation, the Christian hope and would claim certainty is that true human existence should be one without suffering. And I'm yet to meet many unbelievers, non-Christians, who would try and argue strongly against that and try and live it out in practice. But the Christian claim is true human existence should be one without suffering. And while this may not be possible immediately, because that would then be going against our current human experience, The picture of eternal human existence for those who are the children of God is an existence without suffering, an existence without pain, without trials, without desperation, a perfect existence. So again, I raise the question, surely this is not possible. Uh, Notice what the book of Revelation says, Revelation chapter 21, this is the sort of future-orientated vision that Christians long for. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. If I could offer that to you this afternoon for the rest of your earthly existence, would you take it if it was guaranteed? I suspect we all would, wouldn't we? This picture here, however, is a future-orientated picture, a picture of a perfect relationship with God, man dwelling with God, everything being made new, the old being passed away, mankind dwelling in the intimacy of God's immediate presence with no hint of death, no hint of suffering, no crying, no mourning. And again, I say it sounds too much like the story with an ending that just can't come true. 
Because in our current experience, we see in the world pain and suffering of millions. In our daily existence, we see the suffering of innocent people. And in case we become a bit immune to it because we think it's just a bit out there, we see it in our own lives. The reason for that, the Bible explains, is because earlier on in the biblical narrative, Adam and Eve, those who were placed in God's good part of the creation, the Garden of Eden, asserted themselves in God's place and rebelled against Him. Instead of obeying His good, trustworthy word, they decided to oppose Him. They followed their own desires. They sought, if you like, to fulfill their own longings in a way that they thought was reasonable rather than in trusting God. And in doing so, the Bible tells us that evil enters the world and suffering comes as a consequence, both for them and for others in the world. And so today, in the biblical understanding, we continue to live out the consequences of this opposition to God's good authority over us. So how then is it possible that our current experience of suffering can be changed to be that of what we read here in Revelation chapter 21? I want to suggest to you that as we now turn to Mark chapter 5, the passage that was read for us earlier shows us the impact that the man Jesus has on those who suffer. And his action shows us two things. Firstly, the assurance of restoration to God and secondly, the assistance now in our sufferings. So let's look at both of these passages briefly in turn. Uh, If you've got the whole of the sort of the Mark 5 narrative open there in front of you, that would be very helpful. But let me draw to your attention some observations about the woman with the bleeding in Mark 5, verses 24 to 34. Uh, We're told in the text that the woman had suffered terribly for years. Uh, These days, presumably, would say it's a chronic disease in that it's ongoing and generally doesn't get resolved. And yet in the narrative, we're told that Jesus provides a way for the woman to be healed. Her act of trust, her act of faith in touching Jesus' cloak means that she is healed from a thing, a disease, an illness, a sickness, a condition that no one else had been able to heal. The woman here demonstrates faith, trust, a recognition that Jesus has the power to restore her human nature and Jesus relieves the woman's suffering. Interestingly, not proactively and not initially knowingly. Unlike other healing miracles where a person, an individual may come to Jesus and Jesus will say, what do you want? And the person says, I'd like to be able to see. Jesus heals them. I'd like to, all the friends lower their crippled man through the hole in the roof down on a mat. It's fairly clear. What do you want? Uh, they're leaning down from the river. Oh, we want you to make him walk, please. But Jesus knows he's healed someone. I can't quite explain how that actually works other than Jesus knows he's healed the woman, which is why he stops and turns around and says, who touched me? He felt power go out from him. There is something about Jesus being both fully God but also in this case fully man that he has the power to be able to heal other people. But notice the woman, the woman is then fearful or if you like in awe of knowing that she has been healed. Perhaps maybe she also felt a little bit threatened that maybe Jesus would unheal her 
having admitted that he'd actually healed her. But notice what goes on here, let's not miss the point, the woman's actually restored to a relationship, particularly back into the community of people, because she's now cleansed. Notice the second narrative that we get, the last part of Mark 5. Mark 5 verse 23, at the beginning of the narrative, uh, Jesus has been told that Jairus, his daughter, is unwell. And Jairus sort of compels Jesus, knowing that Jesus is a healer, to come and heal his daughter. His daughter is at the point of death. Could you imagine what it would be like if your child was unwell? They're in hospital and the doctor calls and says, your child is at the point of death. What would you do? Just got to go and do a few errands. Maybe go and wash the car. Maybe go out and do some shopping. I presume you'd rush to the hospital, wouldn't you? So Jairus is imploring Jesus to get to his daughter's bedside. And yet Jesus has delayed, and as the narrative tells us, actually the daughter has died. Surely this is almost one of the most unimaginable things. The parent almost hearing of the death of their daughter and then having to bury their child. Could there be any worse a form of suffering? And yet Jesus brings the girl back to life, miraculously. He has the power to restore life. The greatest suffering imaginable, dying and not being able to prevent it. And with a word, Jesus overcomes this. And presumably, although the text doesn't go to great lengths to tell us, can you imagine the release from pain that Jairus would have felt? Imagine the almost immeasurable joy and perhaps disbelief of seeing his daughter now alive again. If you've not read the account of Jesus' life, then I want to suggest to you that this should at least give you reason to pause and ask, who is this man that he has the power to do such things? I hope that your experience is not like Jairus. But if I may say, that has been my experience. Uh, The photo you saw earlier was my youngest daughter. Was in hospital for a long time. Very, very unwell. And one night, my wife and I got a call from the emergency department and the uh, head of emergency medicine said, you really need to come to the hospital. We do not think your daughter will be alive in the morning. I read the text of Jairus' urgency and it resonates strongly with my experience. Do you read the text and it resonates with your experience, the loss of a loved one? Friends, at this point, the text can speak into our experience. Who is this man, Jesus, that with a word he restores to life? See, Jesus' time on earth is principally concerned with declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, we are to turn aside from the way in which we're living, follow the Lord Jesus and believe in Him. The kingdom of God is that great offer from God to once again rightly live under His authority, being restored back to relationship with Him. To be in a world where humanity lives rightly with God, where there is no more suffering, no more crying, no more pain, where the thought of death is no longer a reality.
and today I can give personal testimony to say I have had firsthand a brief glimpse into what that is like. For my daughter is still alive today. See, Jesus is the one who ushers in this great kingdom. He demonstrates this very clearly by dealing with the impact of evil in the world, by seeking to restore the created order, and by when he was alive, relieving the suffering of people. It is because of God's great love for justice and righteousness, and because, he, because God treats evil exceptionally seriously, that just at the right time he deals with it. And he deals with it by going to the cross and suffering a horrific death. Could there be any greater suffering to see an innocent man put to death and to take hours to die? For that is what Jesus does. And he does it for you and for me and for all of humanity. His suffering, the pain that he went through, is the means by which he can pronounce a finality to the work and the impact of evil in the world. Friends, it's a problem that we can't solve. I cannot root out the evil in my life. But Jesus can. I cannot fix the impact of evil in the world. But Jesus has. If we're separated from God because of evil, we cannot enjoy the presence of God. The picture of Revelation 21 is actually not possible if you are still in rebellion against God. But Jesus comes, friends, and offers great restoration, complete forgiveness for the way in which you have mistreated Him, chosen to be out of relationship with Him, and He does it by dying and rising. So what does Jesus' action show us? It shows us the assurance of the restoration to God, the miracles that He performs in His life, show us very tangibly that He has the power over evil. He has the power to heal. He has the power to restore. His suffering on the cross points to a time when we too will actually, will we actually be with God personally, face to face. Evil is dealt with. His action is powerful enough to overcome the sin in our life, the rebellion that we've faced towards God. And He offers to us freely this forgiveness. Secondly, He offers us assistance now in our sufferings. Jesus is an example for us for the way in which He suffers. And for those who accept that great gift, God gives us His Holy Spirit. A third person of the Trinity who comforts us in our suffering, reminds us of the great assurance and the great hope that we have that one day we will see the Lord face to face. The question is, is this a longing to an end to suffering that you would take? The assurance that the God who made us, the God who has actually placed in us a longing for an end to suffering, now offers us the solution in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The question is, will you trust that? Just like the woman who touched his cloak. But here we do need to pause and remember that the picture that's given is of suffering being done away with, is a picture upon the return of Jesus, which will then start and continue into all eternity. 
which means that Christians should rightly long for and look for the absence of evil and all of its consequences, pain and suffering. But our experience now, before Jesus comes back, is that suffering will continue. Let's be clear about that. Being a Christian doesn't alleviate you from all forms of suffering. For the world still does not yet recognize Jesus as Lord and Jesus has not yet returned. The world is a dangerous place and Christians and non-Christians will suffer before Jesus comes back again. But Jesus offers a hope to those who trust Him. A hope that the sufferings in this world will not be too much to bear. A hope that the sufferings are temporary. So there is a biblical reality that suffering is a current reality for some, in varying forms, to varying degrees. And it hurts. And while we cannot offer, while we cannot answer the particular question of why me and why now, we know that suffering is but for a time. I cannot give you a reason why my youngest daughter suffered the way she did. I cannot give you a reason particularly why God chose my wife and I and our family. And I can't tell you why it was our last child and not our first or our third. But I can tell you that God in His mercy alleviated the suffering. And now she's alive. But other sufferings will come. And that's the reality between when and now Jesus returns. But I do want to suggest there is one form of suffering that Jesus offers relief from immediately. And each day until He returns. And that is the suffering that many of us feel, sometimes often very deeply, when we do something wrong and we feel guilt. Have you had that feeling of guilt? when you know you've done the wrong thing? I want to suggest to you that this particular form of pain and suffering is moral suffering that comes from a wounding that we experience when we go against our moral compass. And that feeling of guilt can actually cause us great pain and anguish. Sometimes we'll try and alleviate ourselves from this form of suffering by trying to just sort of push on and push that feeling of guilt aside or by trying to do a whole lot of other stuff that means that we might feel better about ourselves or the action that we've carried out. However, our experience shows us that this is rarely possible. We still feel guilty and it hurts. It's called our conscience. So what do we make of this, this claim that I'm making that actually that form of suffering can be alleviated now? I want to suggest to you that the conscience is this human endowed faculty common among all people, not just Christians. It's the capacity for us to internally know whether we are acting consistently within our existing moral framework. It's something that both Christians and non-Christians hold alike, obviously different based on their different moral frameworks. In some sense, it's a bit like the warning light on the dashboard of your car. When everything's going well, when you've got fuel in the car, the light's off. But when things start going a bit wrong, then the light starts coming on again, but it does depend to what the fuel light is calibrated. If you haven't hooked it up to the fuel tank, then the fuel tank can be empty and the light won't come on. You're still going to run out of petrol. Now, the conscience is only as good as how it is informed. 
Uh, here from this particular gentleman. Oh, here we go. Oh, here we go. Caught up now. Here from this guy, Pierce, who's done some thinking on conscience. He says, conscience does not so much indicate that an act committed is wrong as that an act known by other means and rightly or wrongly to be wrong has been committed. See, the conscience is the thing that actually wounds us when we've done the wrong thing. And you might say, look, I can probably hide myself away from physical pain and suffering between now and when the Lord returns, but surely I shouldn't have to feel the pain of conscience between now and when Jesus comes back again. Hear what the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 9. He says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living and true God? Now the writer here is saying that there are all these outward things that people tried to do to cleanse themselves, but they were merely outward. The writer here is saying is that the conscience, the internal moral compass, the wounding that we receive which makes us feel guilty, which causes us pain, can be cleansed and can be cleansed this very day. And it comes when we rightly turn back to God and accept the forgiveness offered to us in Jesus. That we have done the wrong thing before Him. While there was an inability for the Old Testament sacrifices to do it, the contrast here is in the New Testament that the death, the blood of Jesus, is the means by which our consciences are cleansed. Friends, you no longer need to feel the wounding of your conscience. If you do the wrong thing again, it will wound you, yes, but forgiveness is freely offered in the Lord Jesus. So what then is the offer being made today? I want to suggest that the offer being made today is a recognition that suffering is a current reality in the world. It will be finally and ultimately done away with at the return of Jesus. His life points us to that reality that He is the one who is able to promise that. His death on the cross shows us the means by which the great suffering of death will be done away with. But it will wait until the Lord returns. But in the here and now, the death of Jesus through the offer of forgiveness can cleanse our conscience, ease our suffering. But also the offer of forgiveness of rightly living before God and the pouring out of His Holy Spirit in our lives gives us assistance in our suffering. That if we are to suffer now, perhaps physically, actually the Lord will sustain us through that for as short or as long a period as, as it may be until Jesus comes back again and the picture that we saw in Revelation chapter 21 becomes eternity for those who have been forgiven by God. So today, as we've done in the past, I've got a particular prayer that you might like to pray that I'm about to pray. What it does is it recognises that we are unworthy before God, but recognises this particular offer of forgiveness. I'm going to pray this prayer now. You might like to bow your heads or close your eyes or just sit quietly. And there'll be some in the room today who know actually this is the step they need to take. They've been at various festival opportunities. They realise they are out of relationship with God and the words that they've been hearing from the Scriptures have deep resonance. 
you've realized that in your own experience, you can't take away the pain and suffering. Your conscience remains guilty no matter what you do. And yet the forgiveness in Jesus is the offer to cleanse that. If that's you, then can I encourage you to consider praying this prayer? Let's pray this prayer together. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you, and I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen.